On average, 10 lives are lost to suicide each week in New Zealand. Some members of the media and a number of bereaved families want greater openness around the reporting of suicide, but others warn that it could do more harm than good. In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, Erina O'Donoghue looks at what has been described as a silent epidemic. Most of these photos are pictures of Torin and I on holiday. Every year we would go on a trip overseas and we took a um, year about choosing where to go. On the day he died, we'd just booked our tickets that morning to go to Croatia on holiday, which was his choice. He really wanted to go there. Um, that's one of the last photos that was taken of him, the one with the sunglasses before he died. And... Him with his cat, Ellie, who he loved dearly. Maria Bradshaw is one of the estimated 65,000 people who lost someone through suicide in New Zealand in the past 20 years. Her son, Torin Henry, took his own life three years ago. He was 17 years old. Last year, Maria Bradshaw and another mother who had lost a child to suicide set up CASPER, or Community Action on Suicide Prevention, Education and Research. As the mother of a preschooler, I had very good information about keeping household chemicals locked up and not leaving plastic bags lying around. As the mother of a teenager, I knew that it was really important to check that my son had a sober driver and to confiscate his keys from him if he'd been drinking. Nobody ever told me that suicide killed 50% more people than the road toll. Nobody said, these are the things as a mother that you need to know, that you need to watch out for, and that you can do. So educating people and, and empowering them to understand that suicide is one of the most preventable forms of death out there, um, that's critically important. Looking at what the research is showing us in terms of the sense of belongingness and participation in the community and not feeling like a burden. You know, people often say that they can't get involved in suicide prevention work because they're not getting government funding or there's no money around to implement programs. Suicide prevention is something that we we can all do all day, every day, going about our lives. Hugging a child is suicide prevention. Planting a community garden Working together and making sure that children have great nutrition and, and affordable food is a suicide prevention initiative. Setting up a support group, a community centre, setting up a kapahaka group, those things where you encourage links and cohesion and connectedness are all suicide prevention activities and they don't cost money. Um, they're something that we can all be doing. Ministry of Health figures for 2008 show there were 497 deaths from suicide. That same year, 366 people were killed on the roads. The latest suicide statistics, covering the four years to the end of June 2011, have just been released by the Chief Coroner, Judge Neil McLean. He says they show the same broad trends as previous figures published by the Ministry. The highest rate occurs in the 20 to 24-year-old age group, and that's a rate of 21 suicide deaths per 100,000. Interesting, the highest rate for females is in the 50 to 54-year-old age group. That's 11 out of every 100,000, and in the 15 to 19-year age group. 
For males, the highest rates in the younger adult age groups, uh, 20 to 24. Males, as has always been the case, have a higher rate of suicide than females, roughly 3 to 1. Maori have the highest rate of suicide, followed by European, then Pacific and Asian. The rate for Maori in the latest full year was 17.8 per 100,000. The European another rate was 13.5. Judge McLean says a close watch is being kept on the situation in Christchurch following the earthquakes. It um, was prompted by an awareness from discussions with my counterparts in Australia that a similar phenomenon was noted after the Victoria bushfires and uh, also the Brisbane floods. That is that the rate, suicide rate, plummeted immediately following the earthquake. And uh, even as late as uh, the 31st of July, had not come back to what you might call the norm for the Christchurch region. Experts could speculate as to why that would be, bearing in mind that I'm not a suicidologist or an expert in prevention. There are some logical reasons perhaps why this might happen. Ironically, almost a kind of therapeutic effect, as far as suicide's concerned, is the result of a major tragedy because it actually brings the lonely, despairing, depressed people who are the ones who are most likely to commit suicide out of themselves. They actually start pitching in and helping their neighbours. They feel useful and they feel wanted and committed. Sad, but um, probably that's what's going on. In recent times, suicide prevention has largely focused on young people. The figures just released indicate that the overall rate of suicide in the year to June was 12.65 deaths per 100,000 population. But for men over 70, it's much higher. The rate for those aged 80 to 84 is more than 19 per 100,000. Kerry Howley is a community nurse for Age Concern Canterbury, which provides support services for older people. She's been working from home since the June earthquake. Mrs Howley believes suicide amongst the elderly goes underreported, with some opting to end their lives in what may appear to be traffic accidents or by simply not eating and drinking. I did have a gentleman who has since died and that was a decision on his part that he died. And the reason was that he needed some financial assistance. He had $8,000 in the bank. He was living in one of these large properties with a large section. It had become overgrown and the property really run down. The $8,000 was all he owned in his life. And he wanted to keep that for his funeral. And his house, like the bathroom, was completely rotten. The, the toilet was nearly falling through the floor and... He had about three microwaves there that he'd had fires and all of them. And, and, you know, the situation was really bad. And he needed some financial help. And I was unable to raise that financial help to be able to put things right for him because he had the $8,000 in the bank. And he wouldn't spend that 8000 because it was for his funeral. And I suggested, well, maybe he put it in a trust, but he wouldn't do that either. So we came to a point of being unable to move, really, uh, and because it was going to be thousands of dollars, he had no running water in his house because the pipes were all broken. I mean, it was thousands of dollars worth of help that he really needed. So I went to see him one day, and he said, Look, dear, don't worry. I'm not long for this world anyway. He said, I'm going. 
and he'd given up. He'd absolutely given up, and nothing that I could offer him in the way of support or help was actually going to make a difference. And he did. He died within about three weeks. He stopped eating. Kerry Howley is worried that there may have been an increase in suicides since the earthquakes, but that this has gone undetected. She says suicide amongst the elderly deserves as much attention as youth suicide. We do have elderly who are dying sooner than they need to. And some people might argue, well, they're old, they've had their lives, what does it matter anyway? But it matters if that period of their lives is really sad and unhappy and lonely. You know, nobody wants that for their elderly people. So, you know, a greater awareness is a good thing. And I'm not saying that we need to prevent all people dying as they get older because it's a normal part of life. And they, I mean, they are going to die. We're all going to die. But it's about that quality of life as they progress to that stage. So, yeah, I'm really keen to see people have a greater awareness of the depression and the suicide likelihood because I don't think a lot of families understand that possibly their older people are making a choice. Welcome to Te Runango Ngāti Pikiao. Um, I'll just show you through the, the area. Down here we've got our psychological services in here and our social workers um, that are working here and our social workers work with youth and all that. Just through here, we're coming into our whānau order team. And our whānau order team A group working to target the high rate of Māori suicide is Kia Piki Te Ora, funded by the Ministry of Health. Michael Naira is one of its coordinators, based with Te Runanga on Ngāti Pikiao in Rotorua. The Ministry of Health Statistics for 2008 show that Māori youth suicide rates were 70% higher than those for non-Māori. Mr Nida says the main problem within Māoridom when it comes to addressing suicide is how to talk about it in a public forum and within communities and families. He says this is a particular issue for men. I think if I had a cordial for them or a talk for them is to... Basically, uh, the bros need to talk about it. They need to talk about their issues. Uh, I think, you know, and, and myself included, I'm in this in this realm, is that once we get an issue, we shut down, and 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 so you either either start drinking or taking drugs to get rid of the issue. But the thing with the with the boys is that hey, the issue's going to be still there, and 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 it'll always be there. So just talk to someone. Uh, with our ladies, they don't tend to suicide, they tend to self-harm and, and it's quite high for Māori women. And uh, the difficulties with our ladies is, is that um, they, they talk a lot, but they, it might be because they're talking to the wrong people and, and just to get out and contact the agencies out there and have a good talk uh, about your issues that are currently going on. Michael Nida says the Kia Piki Te Ora program has been running since 2001 with nine sites across the country. He says something their group and others discussing the issue of suicide are struggling with is the fear that if it's not approached correctly, there could be a contagion effect. So if you're talking about things that are happening, you think it's going to happen, copycat stuff will happen. Um, what Māori is saying in the community is, 
we've always talked about issues at our marae, we've always talked about issues in open forums. Um, let us do that, let us discuss these issues. Um, but because uh, policy or government policy suggests otherwise, um, there's a bit of confusion out there on what, what Māori should do. Good morning, how are Hi, you? Hi, good thanks. Good. Hi, nice to see you. As the Associate Health Minister, Peter Dunn's portfolio includes responsibility for suicide prevention. He says a range of programmes are being run as part of the National Suicide Action Plan. The Ministry of Health spends between 3 and $3.5 million each year on initiatives that are specific to suicide prevention. That's in addition to funding for mental health programmes and spending by district health boards. We have a particular situation in Kawarau at the moment where a huge number of government agencies and other agencies are involved in trying to get to grips with what appears to be a devastating situation in that town. But beyond that, there's just the constant repetition of the message that we've got to actually be more open in our understanding of the, the conditions that lead people to contemplate suicide. Uh, we've got to be better placed to intervene early when those signs start to become obvious. It's just simply not acceptable in my view to, um, and it, this is not a criticism, it's just a fact to be, keep saying, if only we realised, if only we understood at the time. So there's a whole lot of things around that that we've got to focus on. This is our biggest problem, far surpassing even the road toll. I'm not talking about downplaying the significance on the road toll, but maybe just upping the significance on suicide issues would be a good start. The question of how media can best report on suicide is currently being examined by a panel of mental health specialists, government agency representatives and media professionals. Peter Dunn is heading the review of media guidelines. This process is really about trying to get for the first time an agreed uh, set of guidelines between all media outlets in New Zealand. Each has their own at the moment and sometimes they are not so much contradictory but they're not consistent. And there's been remarkable goodwill from both the, um, the newspapers, from the broadcasters, from television, to try and see if we can get some coherent overall guidelines. And I'm still working towards that, and I'm pretty optimistic about the outcome. The current guidelines, which were produced by the Ministry of Health, include the following advice to media. Placing a story about suicide on the front page of a paper or using the word suicide in headlines may increase the risk of copycat suicides. Don't use photographs or visuals of a funeral, the deceased person's bedroom or a method or site of suicide as this may increase the risk of copycat behaviour. Avoid glorifying suicide and minimise tributes like public eulogies and memorials. I strongly object to the glamorisation. I think we've got to be very, very careful that we don't promote, if you like, suicide as an alternative or even an option. Uh, I think that's a very real concern. Uh, having said that, I think the media guidelines really focus on the way in which suicide can be reported, not the glamorisation of it. But, for instance, one of the things that, that uh, I think we probably need to uh, be a bit more open about is some of the language we use police say there are no suspicious circumstances or I'm not looking for anyone else in connection with this death. We all know what that means. You know, I think it's probably in those cases better to say police suspect suicide or something of that nature. I don't think we need or want graphic descriptions of what happened or how. I'm not at all persuaded that in most cases 
we want front page stories. But there will be instances that, that because of the nature of the individual, will attract more attention. While the media guidelines are voluntary, there are strict rules set out under the Coroner's Act 2006. It states that if a death has occurred in New Zealand and there's reasonable cause to believe it was self-inflicted, this can't be reported as such until an inquiry has been completed. Once a death has been ruled as suicide, coroners can't allow publication of details other than the name, address and occupation of the deceased and the fact that the death was self-inflicted unless they're satisfied that by doing so it won't cause any public harm. Tim Pankhurst is one of those involved in the review of the media guidelines. He's the chief executive of the Newspaper Publishers Association, secretary of the Media Freedom Committee and a former editor of the Dominion Post. He says the guidelines are a broad structure which pretty much set out what the media is already doing now. The media has to balance its public duty to um, investigate you know, pressing public issues against the prospect of doing any harm. The guidelines attempt to take notice of the mental issues involved, mental health issues involved, but also the realities of, of publishing and broadcasting and meeting, meeting our public role. So that's the way they're framed. And I think if you can get all the mainstream media to subscribe to those generally they do in spirit anyway, but publicly commit to them, then um, you know, I, I think that's, that's to the good. But we will continue to put, to argue for um, more disclosure, more transparency, and as I say, and I, I think we're seeing this as a very real shift in the way the coroners who have to deal with this in their courts 500 times a year, some of them feel very, very, very strongly about it. And, and about a stronger media role. Tim Pankhurst says while there's no appetite for it at the moment, he would still like to see revisions to the Coroner's Act. Hi, Jim Anderson speaking. Oh, hi, Sally. Um, have you got the stuff that... The Progressive Party leader and MP for Wigram, Jim Anderton, became involved in suicide prevention following the death of his oh, daughter. Under the last Labour-led government, he was an Associate Minister of Health in charge of suicide prevention policy. In one of my families, in my electorate, three, three boys, only three boys in the family, each committed suicide one after the other. Um, it was horrendous. And it, it alerted me to the fact that the most at-risk people after a suicide are the immediate family members. And we set up a... a postvention program to deal with that and have family members counselled and so on. Mr Anderton objects to some media outlets claiming they haven't been allowed to cover suicide issues when they should have been. I mean I acknowledge that my daughter had committed suicide. I thought it was important that there be no speculation and I, I have talked about it and I, I think that's quite appropriate. There's no problem. And, and this paper tiger that's put up by some elements of the media, oh, shock horror, we're not allowed to talk about it, we're not allowed to cover it properly, and so on, it's ridiculous. The Christchurch Press did a lengthy series of articles on suicide, its causes and the response and how we could deal with it, and it was very appropriately done, and it was very high quality and high standard. No complaints from me on that. So you can do it. But some people want to sell newspapers. They'll tell you that they're there for the freedom of the press. I don't believe it. 
I've been there with some of those people and I know what they were about and it had nothing to do with freedom of the press. It all had to do with selling newspapers. In June last year, a first-of-its-kind study of media reporting on suicide in New Zealand was published, funded by the Ministry of Health. The team was led by Associate Professor Brian McKenna, the Director of the Centre for Mental Health Research at the University of Auckland. The study found that overall, the quality of reporting was good. Brian McKenna says they looked at five case studies in detail, including reports of three suicide attempts by a prominent sports commentator. The first attempt, we saw the worst examples of reporting in terms of description of how the attempt had taken place. And front page of a Sunday newspaper, you know, huge font with the word suicide projected. And then by the third attempt, we saw some of the best examples of reporting where reporters were saying, well, there's obviously a degree of distress going on with this young man. What explains it? And so they were then starting to interview and, and try to make, to explain what was going on by interviewing mental health experts and that sort of thing. So you see examples of some really good reporting and then you see some examples of some not-so-good reporting. And I suppose in my mind that reinforces the need to have the guidelines. The Chief Coroner, Judge Neil McLean, says despite the findings of the study, it seems media are now pushing the boundaries in a way they weren't before. That may reflect the changing in the whole media scene, the trend towards uh, falling newspaper um, uh, subscriptions and figures, the much wider range of media outlets, the competition for a story that has a particular angle, uh, just the sheer quite aggressive competition that's going on and I think it's different from what it was 30 years ago. Judge McLean is calling for a gentle opening up of the discussion about suicide and is encouraging coroners to think more about when it might be appropriate to make more details public. And what I'm suggesting is that there is a, increasingly a case for saying perhaps it would do some good to let some further details out about this because what I'm picking up is that many people, including the grieving relatives, but also the wider community, want a bit more information about what to be looking out for. What are the warning signs? But Judge McLean says a front-page article in the Dominion Post earlier this year about the suicide of a young Manawatu mother made him and others uncomfortable. While I'm a great supporter of mainstream media and their role in as it were, the fourth estate, and uh, that we are an open and democratic society and we should be able to talk about things and the uh, media should not be fettered. That sort of treatment, to my mind, sits uneasily with what mainstream media says. Look, you can trust us, we will be responsible about the way we report. And that then really is the essence of what the media guidelines are all about, trying to give some consensus guidance on what's the best way to deal with this? And certainly a common theme of that is don't glorify it, don't sensationalise it, don't give it front page treatment, banner headlines, big photographs. So that particular decision caused me, and I think a number of others, considerable disquiet. Tim Pankhurst, who was the editor of the Dominion Post until taking on his role as chief executive of the Newspaper Publishers Association in 2009, thinks the report was fine. 
Um, it was hardly glamorised when the headline was Luana's tragic tale, and um, it quoted the coroner concerned, um, Tim Scott, who had elected to make this issue public. He talked in detail about the method used in this case, which was hanging. Um, he said there's nothing particularly mysterious about it, and publication of details here, um, should the media wish to do so, is not going to make it any more likely that people will take their lives by hanging in the future. Sadly, this is a given. The method is so well known. Um, he also said that to report details of tragedies like this may make it less likely that uh, similar deaths will occur in future. That's a view backed by the co-founder of the Casper Suicide Prevention Group, Maria Bradshaw. She says one of the few things that gives bereaved families a reason to keep going is being able to do something to try to stop this happening to others. Throughout history, the way we've passed on knowledge and wisdom is through storytelling. And, you know, I know that when people open a newspaper or tune into a radio or a TV report, it's not graphs and charts and statistics that make them think, gosh, I'd better do something about this, this could happen to me. It's the stories of people who are like the people in their families and in their neighbourhoods. That makes people think, I'd better take some action. And, you know, our, our loved ones' stories are all that we have left. And for them to be owned by coroners and by the government, for us to be told that we can't, we can't talk about what happened to them, when we're doing that because we want to stop this happening to anybody else. I mean, the death of a child by suicide has been described by lots of commentators as the worst injury a human being can suffer. When you've been through that yourself, you wouldn't wish it on anybody and you would do anything to stop others from having to go through that experience. And that's how our loved ones' deaths and their stories can be used. But others, such as the Mental Health Foundation, advise caution. Judy Clements is the chief executive of the organisation, which includes a suicide prevention information service known as SPINS. Sometimes people talk about glorifying suicide by uh, actually giving so much attention to the, to the individual and the fact that they've taken their life. And it almost comes into the realm of a heroic act. And although that might feel sitting here talking in the sunshine like a, an unlikely prospect. There has been some research evidence that points to that. And I think with the, the issue with suicide prevention is that we always have to err on the side of caution. If it is possible that an act or a happening could cause the death of somebody, then you have to pull back from that. However, she says there is still a place for talking about mental health and suicide more openly. Others will then feel that they can maybe help as well, which is something that's, that's often uh, the case that people don't know, feel they don't know what to say. They, they avoid um, somebody that they think might be going through a difficult period. And particularly, I mean, I've heard some uh, heart-rending stories about people who've lost loved ones to suicide and then find that they themselves are shunned by people because they don't know what to say or they feel they might say the wrong thing. So I think there does need to be a degree of, of openness. Those wanting help or advice over any of the issues raised in this programme can call Lifeline on free phone 0800 543 
0800-7354 or they can call Samaritans on 0800-726-666. That's Lifeline 0800-543-354 or Samaritans 0800-726-666. Those numbers and other useful links can be found on the Insight webpage radionz.co.nz forward slash insight. That insight program was written and presented by Erina O'Donoghue. It was produced by Philip Tolley. Technical production was by Mark Chesterman.